Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. As I mentioned, I want to share a few words for you here this morning. I guess it's always dangerous when a person says, share a few words. <laughs> but uh, I believe what I, what I want to share with you will be an overall view from Scripture, but then a more specific view. How many lovers of Scripture do we have here today, by the way? I hope I'm in good company. I've grown to love the Scripture. I wasn't raised with it, but I've grown to love the Scripture. And that's your story, too, for many people, because you've told me. But any reader of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you know, you marvel over the type of men and women that God chooses to use. Maybe that's just me, but as I read through this over and over again, that Genesis to Revelation narrative I've sat back and just marveled at times and said, God, use that person. And a number of months ago, I, I went through a list of people that the Lord used. And again, I want to refresh your memory of some of the vessels God used to accomplish his purposes. I mean, think about it. He used Noah. Noah was an odd man in his generation. He was quite odd, actually. There he was building an odd structure, an ark, as we call it in English, at an odd time before it had, had really rained. And before the flood had come, there's Noah, and God uses Noah for his purposes. There's Abraham, which Scripture mentions in Jewish tradition really emphasizes that Abraham came from a family of idolaters. And yet, God used Abraham and revealed to Abraham the knowledge of who he is, who God is, the true, the living God. There's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he, he says, he says, I, I'm a not our, I'm just a young person. How can you use me? And God says, I'm going to use you to pluck up nations and plant and sow and pull up. And, and he does. He uses Yetbiahu Jeremiah exactly for that. There's Esther. Esther is a Jewess who is hiding her identity for a long time in her life. Even later on in the book of Esther, that's when we learned that her Hebrew name was Hadassah. There's Ezekiel. Man, you talk about an unusual character, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was unusual. He is asked to do some very unusual things, and he's an exiled Kohen, Levitical priest, in the land of Babylon. And God chooses to use him. Well, all the people there, he used other folks, but he used him. And what about Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, this young virgin from the tribe of Yehuda, the tribe of Judah, of all, 
all the people, he chooses to use Miriam, Mary, the mother of Yeshua. Man, you talk about an unusual person. The one that's commonly called John the Baptist. Yochanan Amatibil in Hebrew. John the Immerser. What an unusual fellow. I mean, not only from his clothing, but his diet, where he goes and preaches, you would think he would go to the, you know, the environs of Jerusalem, but he goes out into the highways and byways of the Jordan Valley, the River Jordan. He wears that unusual garb. He has this very powerful message, you brood of vipers, he says to them. He doesn't say that just to the common folks. He says that to the leaders. You brood of vipers. Who warned you about the wrath to come? God used that man who also was from a priestly family. He used Matthew, Matatiahu. He used Matthew, Mati in Hebrew. Who was, he was part of the Roman tax collecting system. Think about it. The despised Romans, he uses Matthew. He chooses and calls Matthew. And now, as our chronology has, at least in our English Bibles, the very first book that we have in the Brit Chalashah in the New Covenant is the book of Matthew, who used to be the tax collector, the tax man. And then there's Kepha, Peter. It's an interesting thing if you're ever in a setting where you can do this, a small group, just to, and especially those that are biblically literate, if they're around you, just ask them their thoughts about Peter. The number of different adjectives you're going to get will be surprising. I mean, some would use the term he was gruff, he was bold, he was vociferous, he was a crusty fisherman. I don't know how would you say it. And who stands up on the day of Shavuot, the day of Pentecost, and gives really the first message that we hear after Yeshua's resurrection, ascension and resurrection? Who is it? It's this fisherman, Kepha, Peter, Simon, Peter, and what about the other Miriam? There's at least four of them mentioned in the New Covenant. Miriam, who was from Magdala. If you've been following what's happened in Israel archaeologically, you've probably read even this week about Magdala. Our last trip, we were there. It's one of my favorite sites now. But they found, first of all, the synagogue of Magdala. First of all, they found Magdala. They found the city, Mary Magdalene, so she's called in English. They found this, the city of Magdala, which was a Jewish city right on the banks of what we would call the Sea of Galilee. And they found nearly an intact synagogue. You can go and sit in the, in the stone benches there. The place where the ark was kept, the Torah was kept. And now they found even more stuff connected to that. All this because the particular a denomination wanted to build a guest house on the shore of the Galilee. They got permission in Israel. It is law that if you're going to scrape the ground anywhere in Israel in an official manner, you have to have archaeological overview or oversight of what you're doing. 
and they found the city that they'd been looking for. I mean, we, they knew about Mary Magdalene, Maryam of Magdala, but now they found the synagogue there. Well, all that's great, but it tells us in Scripture in Luke chapter 8 that Maryam of Magdala had seven demons in her, and Yeshua delivered her, and God used her. And what about Paul? Rab Shaul, as I like to call him, Rabbi Saul. Paul of Tarsus, who was, we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 7 and before. We're introduced to him as a, a merchant of death to Messianic Jews. He had been sent out as a shaliach, as an apostle from the, the, the religious authorities of Jerusalem to go to Damascus to wreak havoc upon the Jewish believers in Damascus, which tells us that there was a large contingency of Messianic Jews in Damascus in the first century. That's where he was going when he had his Damascus Road experience. How many of you have heard that term before, Damascus Road experience? And I hope you've had something similar in your life. Something that has turned you away from the way that you were going that was not pleasing to the Lord and turned you to the right way, to walk in the light as he is in the light. And as you do that, you have fellowship with other believers. Paul, this merchant of death, and now what do we have? So many of our igerot, our epistles in the New Covenant, were written by this man. He was a scholar of Judaism. He was trained by Gamaliel, Gamaliel. And God chose this one who was being sent out like an apostle from the, the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem to get those in Damascus who were believers. God turned this guy around and sent him as his own shaliach, his own apostle. And not to the Jewish people, but to the nations. And aren't you thankful that God used this man and aren't you thankful that he used some of the men and women that I just mentioned, and many more that time doesn't allow us to mention. But as you read Scripture, you encounter them. The list goes on and on. It's person after person. Some of the most unlikely people you would think of, God says, this one's mine. She's mine. And he uses them. Place after place. They're not all in the temple praying. Sometimes they're out in the field. Sometimes they're having issues. God says, she's mine. I am calling you. Time after time, sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes in the bright of the day, this one's mine. Or as Yeshua said, Follow me, follow me, meaning follow him. And it's circumstance after circumstance, place after place, time after time, person after person, unusual person after unusual person who he says, you're my vessel, I want to use you. What unites this, there are several things that unite all these people, but there's one word in particular that I'd like to present to you today, and it's a word that we might have some feelings about. It's the word obedience. They obeyed. God told Abraham, Lech lecha, 
You go forth. You know what Abraham does? He goes forth. God speaks to Peter and the apostles. The Messiah speaks to him and says, follow me. You know what they do? They leave their nets and they follow him. God tells Jeremiah, who says, oh, I'm just a na'ar, I'm a youth. How can I do all this stuff? God says, you're going to be my navi. You're going to be my spokesperson, my prophet. And Jeremiah says, yes. Isaiah boldly says, here I am, shlacheni, send me. When the Lord says, whom shall I send? Jeremiah volunteers, send me. Person after person. Generation after generation. Character after character. Place after place. Circumstance after circumstance. All bound together because of obedience. And you know, friends, let me suggest to you here today that as you obey the Lord in your life, you're connecting yourself to those same people. Maybe your calling is different, but you're connecting through obedience and through obeying the Lord and doing what he says. You're connecting back with these great men and women that we read of in places like Hebrews chapter 11. You're connecting with them these individuals, each of them had areas in their life that I think if they were given a, a pad and a pencil, they could begin to write all their areas of weakness they had. Peter did at times speak a little bit out of turn. Let's face it. <laughs> he was brash at times. Let's face it. Timothy, mentioned in the New Covenant, Robson wants to say, don't be so timid. God has not given you a spirit of fear. One after the other. They weren't perfect. They were vessels, human vessels. And somehow through the power of God and through the working of his grace within them and through their commitment to obey God, transformation takes place. And by the way, the same process is happening in a believer's life. A transformation is taking place. Many of us could say that when we first knew the Lord, we were this way, and as we grew in the Lord, we became this way. And I'm not talking about stepping away from the Lord. I'm talking about stepping deeper and deeper into the things of the Lord with a deeper level of commitment. Blessed are the young people that catch on to this and obey the Lord at a young age and don't turn away from him, but keep pressing in. What a glorious future you have. What a glorious vision you can have in the Lord for your life because he is faithful. Yet there were some in the first century that questioned Rav Shaul. If we look at the book of Romans and consider that some of the, the rhetorical questions that he brings up in the book of Romans, and there are many of them, that those might have been things that had been said to him. And he's putting them out there so he can answer them. He's answering things that he thinks the people were thinking or may have been thinking. For example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Rapshul asked the question, and as I mentioned in the book of Romans, there are many rhetorical questions. Questions he arises that he causes to come forward so that he can give the answer. He asks the questions 
he asked a question that many in the first century probably were thinking. Here's the question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? When you catch this vision of a gracious God, God is merciful, well, do we just keep sinning so that we can receive more and more mercy? Now, there are some that actually, they would never say it that way, but that's kind of how they conduct themselves. You can say, well, I'm a believer. That's all that matters. I can do whatever I want. I've encountered them over the decades. Individuals have thought, hey, I just do what I want. Because his grace, because of his grace, because of his grace. How about the elements of obeying God and doing his will? Because not all who cry, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but those that do the will of the Father. So Rob puts this question out there. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he immediately responds with two strong words. Most English texts carry this through, by the way. His response is, certainly not. Which could be translated, be absolutely certain about this. No, we don't continue in sin so that grace can abound. What do we do with sin, by the way? We repent from it. We turn from it. And that's part of the struggle in our lives because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We repent from it. Now, you see, that place of desiring to glorify God and to obey him, which is a common thread among the people of God that he has used, those individuals he used, You know, we have something that's explained to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, to consider. Rob Shaul, Paul, declares to the Corinthians, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. There have been questions, why does he say that? Because sometimes a person can think, hey, look, it's because of my virtue that God loves me so much. It's because I've always been such a good person. And I'm not downplaying that idea. We should always seek to do what's right and good. But you see, you're calling, brethren, that many, not many wise according to flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen... And he writes this to the Corinthians, and here we have it 2,000 years later. He said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing, the things that are, and then here's a key point, it's in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. When you stand before the Lord, are you just going to say to him, it's me, (laughs) I'm the good guy. Scripture tells us that all our righteousness like filthy rags. And I know this is a hard word for some, and I am advocating doing what's right. But when it comes to Yeshua, salvation, 
We are saved by the merit of Yeshua the Messiah. He is Adonai Sidkenu, the Lord, her righteousness. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 30, but of him you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became for us wisdom from God. And notice this next phrase. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Where are these linked to? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, they're linked to Yeshua the Messiah. Are you in him today? Is he your Lord and Savior? If your answer is yes to that, then he is your righteousness. And now in him you go and do what's right and pleasing. He is your sanctification. Within you, by his spirit, you're being changed and sanctified. Some Christian denominations even mention what they call the, the, the process of sanctification as a secondary thing. Are you in Messiah Yeshua? You're experienced redemption. And how many of you can say that your life has been changed since you came to know the Lord? I have my hand up for that one. There are different times where I've expressed people where I've come from in my life and they don't believe me. It's probably the same for you, by the way, where you've come in life. God is so faithful. He's merciful. He's kind. He's compassionate. Yeshua is our righteousness, our sanctification, sanctification and redemption. And verse 31 is very important. That as it is written, he who glories, you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say let him boast in himself. It says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. What that means, part of it is that when we are speaking to people, guess whose name we lift up? The name of the holy God of Israel, Yeshua the Messiah, who is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We lift him up. And he said, and it had a couple of meanings, but he said, if he's lifted up, part of it has to do with on the tree, the execution stake, the cross, he said, I'm going to draw men to me. It was prophesied that unto him shall the gathering of the people be. It's unto Messiah. Unto him. Now, this last phrase in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, seems to be a phrase that was extracted from one of those individuals that didn't really know how God could use him. Jeremiah, And in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, that he knows me as Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And then God adds this statement through Jeremiah, the one who said, I'm just the youth, I can't do this. He did it, by the way. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. He delights in that we know him as Lord, and he delights that we understand that he exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Now, all this brings us, believe it or not, 
to Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus. We can connect with the book of Exodus because of these preliminary thoughts. Because in the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, as it's called in Hebrew, we're introduced to one of the grand characters of history, one of the grand characters of Scripture. We know him here as Moshe, Moses. And as we learned in this week's portion, if you read the first five chapters of the book of Exodus, each portion is written in the communique, by the way, for the next week. But in that first five or so chapters of Exodus, we're introduced to Moshe, to Moses. Now, we already have preconceived ideas about him. We've seen the movies. We know how he acts. Put those aside for a minute, and if you have a chance, reread Exodus and see what kind of person you encounter. You encounter a person that is a Levite who was adopted son of the household of Pharaoh. He ends up in the house of the Pharaoh, basically raised there. He had been placed in a, in a little basket and put on the Nile River, which was quite perilous, by the way. Because back then, the Nile still flooded and filled a good portion of lower Egypt with floodwaters. But he was placed in Nile there. That's the kind of background we have. And before long, we read in the book of Exodus, guess what happens to this guy? He becomes a fugitive. There used to be a program on television called The Fugitive. That was very popular way back when. Well, it could, there could have been a program on the Egyptian television that said the fugitive and had the punum, the face of Moses there. There he was. He's the fugitive. Why was he a fugitive? If you read through the parasha, if you're familiar with the narrative, you know he's a fugitive because he had murdered someone. One of his own countrymen. He had murdered someone within his country. And so he ends up being a fugitive. He has to run. One of his Egyptian countrymen, he has to flee. He ends up in Midian. And that's what we read in this week's parasha. Again, I might suggest to you he would be somewhat of an unlikely character. A guy with a record. <laughs> a guy with wanted posters all over Egypt for him. <laughs> Especially he had gone on the wrong side of the leadership in Egypt. They were killing a fellow uh, Egyptian. Now, God has the last say in these matters, we learn quite quickly as we read Scripture. Of all the generation of Noah and all the people that lived on the face of the earth, God had the last say who he chose, and he chose Noah and his family. Of all all the widows in Tyre, Sarephath, and other places north of Israel, God sends Elijah to the widow of Zarephath. Of all the individuals at Jericho, Yeshua is on his way up to Jerusalem. Yeshua is directed in his attention to Zacchaeus, the little Jewish guy from the tree that I spoke of a few weeks ago. And God's attention is drawn to this fugitive out in the land of Midian who is named Moshe. 
The rest is history, isn't it? Because once Moshe responds to the call of God on his life, just like once you respond to the call of God on your life, your life changes. Moses could have been thinking, well, it's not so bad out here. I have a wife. I have some sheep. There's no one out here that bothers me. There's no wanted posters out on the cacti around here trying to catch me. I have a good relationship with my father and all. But God had other plans. And friends, let me encourage you to give in to the plan of God for your life. Let go and follow him. See where he'll take you. And it's not a matter of age, by the way, because Moses was 80 at this point. See where he'll take you. See what he wants to do with you. See what, what he wants to use you to do. Because he has good plans and purpose. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 is an incredibly beautiful verse. Samuel, the prophet, the time of the anointing, the king of Israel. Verse six, chapter 16, verse 7 says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, when a person's heart is turned toward God, toward the truth, toward God's way, toward showing forth God's glory and his love within his life, when a man or woman does that, God takes notice of that person. God gets deeply involved in that person's life. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 says, if anyone loves God, that's a big open gate there. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. You know, it doesn't say if only the men love God, if any man, any woman, it's anyone. Jewish, Gentile, wherever you're from. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And there's an expression that we use in the English language fairly often. In fact, I've heard it many times and I've probably used it and maybe you have as well. That a person may go through a lot of struggles and even make some mistakes in their life, but you come away when you get to know that person and you realize there's more to this than that, than their obvious mistake they've made. You come away saying something like this, well, that person's heart was in the right place. Any of you ever used that expression? Where you, where you looked at something was gone, but you realized there was more to that person than maybe what they did. Parents use that with their children, don't they? Children does something wrong and say, no, there's more to my child than that. And I think God does that with his children. Yeah, we cross some lines sometimes. But there's something about he sees in our heart. He doesn't judge like man judges. God sees what's in the heart. And he knows that anyone that loves him, he knows that person. And I pray that's each of us. But the new covenant pulls no punches in this matter. It makes clear that those coming from a life of sin, and by the way, that includes each of us here today, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's it. Nekuda, that's the point. We've all sinned. Puts us all in the same category. Since we've all sinned, then we can all also be saved. Salvation is for everyone. 
Faith in Yeshua is the answer for all people. Knowing him is the way, the truth, the life, because that's who he is. But God, there's no punches, there are no punches pulled in the new covenant. And what it seems to advocate is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But there's something that can be done in our lives. It's called the turn, turn, turn process. Let me say that again. It's called the turn, turn, turn process that must go in our lives. If we turn from our sinful, selfish ways, if we turn to the Lord, His character and His ways, and if we turn our attention to following the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will really become vessels for the Lord. Turn, turn, turn. That process has to happen. We try to remove one of those turns. For example, the first one, turning from our sinful, selfish ways. We try to follow God according to our sinfulness. We're just going to end up in a deep chasm in our life. If we turn from our sinful ways, but we don't really turn to the Lord, we turn to something else. And some do. They turn to their profession. They turn to other things in life. But we must turn and have a relationship with the living God, come to know his character and his ways. And if we do that, and then we don't yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit and turn wherever he leads us, we're going to miss it as well. We'll end up being a repentant person that has a fear of God but doesn't really do what God says to do. We need the three turns in our life. Turn from sin, the turn to the Lord, and the turn to follow the Holy Spirit, not our own ways. God shows such mercy. You know, no one's beyond the grace of God. If there's a message we get from a Moses, if there's a message we get from a Rav Shaul, Paul the Apostle, if there's a message we get from Jeremiah, or we get from Noah, or from Abraham, there, there's no one, no one is beyond the grace of God. His grace avails for us as we place our trust in our Messiah. No one's beyond his heart of mercy. He's merciful to those who cry out to him. And I'm sure each one of us hearing these words have received mercy from the Lord. You know what's sad? Sometimes we don't thank him enough for being merciful to us, for pulling us out of the pit, the depth and the death of sin. We should be thankful for his ever-present spirit as believers, his spirit. And the most amazing one to me is the child in the manger. You know, we studied on last Tuesday night, we studied the Magi. And to realize that the child in the manger really was in a feeding trough. That's where Yeshua was laid. That... He was, as it were, a spotless spiritual lamb, a living sacrifice for us, who gave up everything. He never knew sin. It's, it's, Satan came for him, but there was nothing in him. Blameless to the core. How do you express it in English? The righteousness, the glory of our Messiah. He's able to save us 
no matter how deep the corners of sin have been in our life, he's able to shine his light upon us. And I'm sure when he was born, placed in that manger, when we think about Yeshua, they wondered. There were a few that got it. Anna, Simeon, they knew who he was, and others, the Magi whom we studied last Tuesday in our biography studies. They got it, but the vast majority of people didn't at the time. It took some time. Paul, the darkened life that he once lived long behind him, he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, expressing to them what has happened to them, that they have come to know Yeshua and their lives are changed. They've gone through the turn, turn, turn process, many of them. He says this to them, now then we are ambassadors for Messiah, for Yeshua. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Messiah's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's the start point. Be reconciled to God. And then describing the one who had been born in a major and placed in a feeding trough. For he made him who knew no sin, Yeshua, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when we consider all the great men and women of God, even those we read about in the Bible, they all pale in comparison to Yeshua. Of Nazareth. Now, I want to conclude by reading you three passages of Scripture that seem to summarize a little bit of what I've been trying to say today. I hope this has stimulated your thinking. First of all, come away with knowing God can use you if you are willing to let Him. Will you obey Him? Come away knowing that you need the three turns in your life. Turn from your sin, turn to God, and turn from your own ways and follow the Holy Spirit. You need the the turn, turn, turn process. We need that in our lives. And also know this, that the future and the plan that he has for you is a good one, well beyond anything you can imagine or put together for yourself. So I want to leave you with three passages of Scripture. The first one, these are summation passages. Many of you know I like to make lists. Well, I'm not going to do a list today, but I want to list three passages of Scripture for you. The first one begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that though he was rich, yet, say it with me, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, friends, I know we're in a materialistic society in 21st century America, but if all you think about is the material part of this, you are missing something. Because the true gold is the knowledge of God and knowing him. If a person's going to boast, as Jeremiah said, let him boast in this, that he knows me was the first thing God says. And then God describes his character. He knows who I really am. The second passage of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, Yeshua made himself of no reputation. There he was born in a major in a feeding trough lying. 
He made himself of no reputation. The king of the universe, the Melech Olam, there he is in the by place called Bethlehem. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. (laughs) He humbled himself. And notice this next phrase. Yeshua became obedient to the point of death. What about us? Will we become obedient in our lives and continue striving that direction in our lives? Became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. How many names? Every name. I don't care what religious figure you're speaking of or thinking of or learning about in the university. Yeshua's name is above every name there is in eternity, in the universe, on the earth, wherever. His name is above every name. That at the name of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, guess what? Every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. That covers it all, my friends. And that every tongue, how many Lips, tongues, every tongue should confess what? That Yeshua the Messiah is Lord. Can you truly say that with your tongue today, that he is your Lord? Don't answer too quickly. Think about it. Because once you say he's your Lord, that means you've gone through the turn, turn, turn process in your life. And he's it now. You're following him. You've left your fishing net on the side of the shore, and you're following him now. And he's making you fishers of men. He's making you whatever he wants you to be for him. And that every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now, befittingly, I want to leave you with some words from our Messiah himself for each of us as we conclude this service from John chapter 10 beginning with verse 27 Yeshua said this he said my sheep hear whose voice his voice don't get caught up in all the voices out there the rabbinical stuff, the theological stuff, and I'm picking on myself here. <laughs> Don't get caught up in all that. Learn the good things of God, but remember, my sheep hear my voice. And notice this next phrase, because it's very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, where God said, if anyone loves him, he's known by God. It says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Does he know you today? When you listen to his voice, does he know who you are? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And you know what they do? They follow who? Me, he said. They follow him. Those are his real people. Those are his sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. But that's not the end of this equation. And... Hallelujah for this next phrase. And I give them eternal life. 
and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Are you in the good hands of the Lord today? Are you his sheep? Have you truly turned, turned, turned to him? I know no more important message for our generation than the message of Messiah Yeshua because in him is life. Everything else is not, but in him is life. Let's pray together, please. Dear Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this Shabbat morning that we've had to fellowship. Thank you for the wonderful time of liturgy wonderful time of worship and praise and dance the wonderful time that we can share together on this Shabbat thank you for your word symbolized by the first five books the Torah thank you for Genesis to Revelation your Torah Lord thank you for the work you're doing in every heart here I pray O oh Lord that we would be not forgetful hearers of your word, but effectual doers of it. Thank you, Lord. May your name be praised. May you be glorified. May you alone be exalted. And may our lives show you forth in a real way, in an honest way, in a true way. Ask these things according to the merit of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.